title of this morning's message is Jesus' Closing Words of Encouragement. And certainly, I'm sure, for those of you who are here regularly, and you're delighted to see that we're coming to the end of chapter 16. We've finally gotten there. Jesus has been teaching for approximately three years with his disciples. And since chapter 13, let's not lose focus of this, he has been involved in a private instruction with his apostles. He's finally got alone away from the world and has been with them and instructing them privately. Also, put into perspective, he is only hours away from his crucifixion. Hours away from his death. He's winding it down. This is the last, as we come to this passage, this is the last of his direct teaching to his disciples. There will continue to be indirect instruction as they observe things and as they hear things, including chapter 17. There will be some who will be taught specifically, such as Peter and Thomas, by the Lord. But as a group, as a whole, those who he's been ministering to, this is it. This is the end of his instruction to them privately. And I would have you think for just a moment, if this was your moment, if this was it, this was your last opportunity, and you are leaving your most loved ones behind, the ones who would be carrying on for you, what would be the last thing that you would want to say to them? You know, it's interesting if you look, and you can go on the internet and do this, begin to look at last statements that were made by famous people and so forth and so on. We don't always get an opportunity to choose our last words. I remember some of uh, the words that I've heard of various people. One of the ones that I heard from someone who was a believer is they were in the presence of one of their loved ones and they were dying. Uh, actually, they were recovering from surgery, didn't know it. And the last words that was said was, oh, no. Seriously, while they're in the presence and what happened just a second later, they died. They just felt it overcoming them. And not very profound last words. But if you really had the opportunity, what would you say? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is hours away from his death. He's been pouring his life into these men for over three years in many ways. He's been teaching, instructing, demonstrating, and now has had a private conversation since chapter 13 with him, and he's at the very end of it. What will he say? For Jesus, it was easy. It was very easy. What were his last words? We actually start in our text with the end of the message. Why? His last words to them is, I am the victor. I am the conqueror. Look at it. I have overcome the world. It's his last comments to them, privately. He says, I have overcome the world. That's what he wants them to remember above everything else that he's teaching them. Jesus is the victor. He is the conqueror. And I start with the end of the text, and I'll work my way back. This is a huge statement. 
I don't even know if we gather the impact of it ourselves, and I hope we will before we leave today. If you tune me off or fall asleep because of the heat, and I'm glad we have it, or whatever, tune into this part of the message. And by the way, I'm not telling you to tune out to the rest. But uh, make sure this is what you get above everything else. Jesus is the victor. He is the conqueror. This world has known world conquerors. It has known men who have attempted in their efforts to conquer the world. As I did some research on this and spent some time looking up various things on this in my personal studies, uh, just as I was digging through the text and so forth, the three most famous, and one of them particularly was not really famous to me, but the three most well-known in your research that you find world conquerors that were successful, number one was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. You've probably heard of that one. He conquered Greece, if you will, to put it simply. But some of the quotations that I read on that was that Greece was owned by this man, and he owned the Middle East. As he went forth to conquer the then-known world, he was known as the owner of the Middle East. Great man and world conqueror. No longer alive. His victories have been dispersed. Second one, maybe to the surprise of some of you, is Genghis Khan as a world conqueror, the mongrel empire. And what happened was, he, as he went to conquer the world, he conquered what is known as China and Central Asia, the then known world. Mighty conqueror, and that's what he set out to do. He set to conquer the world. And again, where is his empire today? What has happened to that? The third one that is actually considered the third most famous, and I was not very familiar with this one, and as I did some reading, I was fascinated by it, but is Tamerlane. How many of you know him? A couple of people, not too, too many. Actually, his name became known as Tamerlane. His real name was Timur, T-I-M-U-R, the lame. And it's because of an injury that he received and so forth, but he then became known as Timberlane. He captured the entire Persian Empire, and he set out to conquer the world. So there's the three most famous. Some of you haven't even heard of the third one. Most of you have probably heard of the first two. But where are their dynasties? Where are their kingdoms? They set out to conquer the world. There have been others who have attempted that. And the list goes on and on and on. Shang, Nebuchadnezzar, as we know in our Bible, of Babylon, Cyrus, bring it up to uh, not too distant past, Hitler more recently. And we could go on and on with names who have attempted to conquer, quote unquote, the world. If you really want to make it modern, and I don't believe, so I don't put it in the wrong text, or say anything wrong here. I don't believe that he set out to conquer the world, but in reality, he did conquer the current technological world, and he just died as Stephen Jobs, which that's not his real name, by the way. 
uh, and I won't go into all of that. But he didn't set out to conquer the world, but in a sense, he's affected everyone that's here with the technology, and he's affected many areas of the world, and he's known in relationship to the Apple company. And I'm not talking about on a tree. Okay, and you know that. So you see, these are people that, and I chose him purposely because his influence in the world that you and I are living in today, whether you know the man or you didn't know the man or whatever, is enormous. Enormous. And there will be a future day in which somebody known as the Antichrist will set up his kingdom excuse me, to conquer the world. And we could go on. I've spent enough time on it. You see the point. There have been men who have sat out, and that is their desire, to get a hold of the world, that the world would be affected by them, that they would be the person on the pedestal. They would be the one in charge, and everybody was subject to them, and in some way, shape, or form would conquer. But my friend, today I want you to know that the one true conqueror of the world and the one and only true conqueror of the world is Jesus Christ. And that's what he left them with. Jesus is the true conqueror. First of all, allow me to talk about the material world for just a moment. That which we see, the seen world. Jesus Christ is the conqueror of that. In fact, he made it. Jesus Christ made everything. You say, well, I thought God made it. Yes, Jesus Christ is God. Turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 15. As far as the material world goes, we read this of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you look back to verse 13, you'll see he's talking about the kingdom of his beloved son. Who is he? Verse 15. He is, that is Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like in bodily form? Jesus Christ is it. That's why you have that conversation that was studied with Philip and so forth. The firstborn of all creation, watch. For, the reason is, watch this one, by him, who's him? Jesus Christ. All things were created. You say, what things? Both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, and it means what it says, all things, universal, have been created through him, and watch the end, for him. Who is the conqueror of the world? Who created it? Jesus Christ did. If we were to turn to John 1, the very book we were studying, the very first chapter, you might forget a little bit of it, but in the beginning, God, and you have the Word, and the Word was God, all things were made by Him. Jesus Christ made it all. We have seen in the book of Isaiah that all of the nations of the world are like a little drop in a bucket. A little drop down there after you've emptied the bucket and you've cleaned it. You got one little drop there still left in a bucket. That's all the nations of the world to him. Or to put it another way, it's like taking a scale that's been cleaned and there's one little speck of dust. That's all the nations out of him. That's how significant. 
The winds and the waves that we know obeyed his voice. All he had to do was say, stop, and they stopped. That is Jesus Christ, the conqueror of the world. In fact, we are told in scripture that the world is the footstool of God. And so my friends, as we talk about that which we see, that which we move about in, that which, listen to me, man has sought to conquer. He created it all. He's the victor over all of that. But that's really not our text. What the text is dealing with, even more so, is the second aspect. What is that? More spectacularly, he is dealing with the immaterial world, the unseen world. And at the end of the verse, when he says, look at just a, be a little bit before that, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. What is he talking about? The world system. Jesus Christ has not only created this world and is conqueror, if you want to use that expression, of this world physically. He has overcome the material world. He has overcome all temptation. He has overcome all aspects of sin. He has come over, overcome the world's philosophy. He has overcome the world's thinking. He has overcome the world's temptation to him. There was no sin with him. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. This is why he's leaving this with his disciples. This is how he wants to the, have them really focus in on him. In Hebrews chapter 4, in verse, I'll go back to verse 14. For since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, identify him, okay? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Why? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but... One who has, watch, been tempted in all things. Did he face temptations? Were those temptations, for example, with the devil real? Yes. Was the attraction of this world real? Yes. As a human being, did he face that? Yes. But then notice the last words. Yet what? Without sin. He overcame it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I won't turn there, verse 21. What is it? He who knew no sin became sin for us. He was able to resist. We have temptation. He had sorrow. He felt disappointment. He felt depression. All of the things that this world can throw our way, he felt, and yet he conquered them all. Pain, he experienced it. Suffering, desertion, no possessions, no money. Where else you want to go with it? Physical, yes. All of it went our Savior's way, and he is the mighty conqueror of it all. The language here back in John chapter 16 is worth mentioning. I try to be a little careful with this, but I believe it's worth mentioning here. When he says to them in his parting words, look, I want you to remember this, I have overcome the world. This is a perfect indicative active tense here. 
There is no equivalent in the English language. That's why I bring it to your attention. What does it mean? It's dealing with a past action, but it also has present results and continued effects. It's not only an action that he's done, he's, as he's leaving them, he's letting he, them know that not only am I the great victor, but I currently am the great victor, and I will remain the conqueror of the world. There is no place else to look for salvation, folks. There is no place else to look for comfort. There is no place else to look for help in the battles that we find, where we know we've got somebody who's faced it and has conquered it all. But in Jesus Christ, he leaves his disciples with, I am the conqueror, the ultimate conqueror. And I want you to remember this, what I already said. He's hours before his crucifixion. What does that mean? The world is going to, in just a few hours, think that they have conquered the conqueror. But even in death, he will conquer sin. Even in death, he will defeat Satan in all of the world system. Why? He is the mighty conqueror. How does that encourage them? That, you know, his closing words of encouragement. How does that encourage them? Or how does that encourage us? Look at what he's been teaching them. Trust me, he's been telling them. He has told them that they are in him and he is in the Father. They have a unique relationship with him. What has he recently taught them? Continue to abide in him. Why? He is the vine. They are the branches. Abide in him. They will have success in their life. They will bear fruit in their life. Why? Because though he will face death, he's a victor because it doesn't end there. He's going back to prepare a place for them, chapter 14. Chapter 13, as the victor, he served them. We are to serve one another. He was the example. He's the one that they could look to. And the Holy Spirit is being sent by him, the helper, so that they can have victory in their life. What about us? The same is true with us. Because of Jesus Christ, first of all, let me deal with salvation. We would have no hope for victory over sin. No way of paying for our sin. You can be the most religious person on the face of the earth. You can try by good works to earn payment for your sin. It will never, ever, ever be accomplished. Only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ could satisfy a holy God. And only Jesus Christ could not give in to temptation. Only Jesus Christ could hold up under discouragement, desertion, physical pain by turning to the Savior. And he is the one who is the author, listen, and the finisher of our faith. And that is why we're told in Hebrews, look to him. That's where our victory is. It is in him. And if you haven't come to Christ yet, you need to see there is no other salvation. There is no other world conqueror over sin. There is no other conqueror in this face of the earth who has the power like God has. Salvation's found exclusively in a person, not in any religion, not in any individual.
in this world. And we too as Christians are to trust in him. Listen, we are said in scripture that as believers, we are more than what? Conquerors. This is the word where we get our word Nike from. It means victory. It's kind of interesting. I, I meant to share it with my Sunday school class this morning, and it just kind of slipped my mind because it's part of the research I had done. But it was interesting. In uh, one of the temples, the, the god, goddess, excuse me, Nike, was a god with wings. And that's why, by the way, on Nike, you used to see there'd be a foot with wings on the back of it. That's the way that, that god was represented. However, because they never wanted that god to leave and for Greece to be always the area of victory, they built the temple and they clipped the wings off of the goddess. Why? Because victory would always remain there, in their opinion. Listen, the only place that victory always remains and will always be and always has been is in Jesus Christ. But we are said to be more than conquerors. Where? In Christ. Our faith is what overcomes the world, we're told in 1 John. Are we not? And so he's leaving his disciples with that thought. Look at what I really want you to remember is this. I have overcome the world. And he's going to talk about that tribulation and so forth in just a second as we get to it. So in the context, they need to see that by abiding in him, by remaining in him, by looking to him, they will have victory too. In fact, the three areas that I brought out in it is they have access to the truth, they will have access to the Father, and access to peace. Where? In Him. As they look to the one who has overcome and been victorious over the world. What a Savior we have. What a hope we have. Now let's quickly go back and look at those three points. Access to the truth in verse 25. He says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, an hour is coming, he says, when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. That, that word figurative language is a good translation, as opposed, I know some of the translations do deal with the word proverbs and so forth and so on, but it means unveiled, I mean veiled language. It means cryptic. He's spoken to them that way, something that was not really apparent. At times, he made things very clear by his choice in some cases, but we have already seen in the last two weeks, so I'm not going to spend the time on it again, that many times, though he was speaking to them, they couldn't understand. They couldn't understand the situation. But he says in the future, when is that? We've already seen it. For simplicity, just go back and look at verse 12, chapter 16. I have many more things to say to you. Remember this? But you cannot bear them now. But, verse 13, when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into what? All the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he is, he will speak. And to make it very simplified, what is he referring to verse 25? They will have total access to the truth because of his going. That's why he said it was to their advantage in chapter 16. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach them. And as we have already seen, it's also guidance for supernatural intervention known as inspiration. They will have the ability to remember, to record, and to understand the scriptures plainly. That is also true for us. It was to the advantage of us that Jesus Christ went to the cross. 
and suffered, not only for salvation, but that he went away and sent the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit indwelling the New Testament believer now has the advantage of understanding fully and having the full revelation of God. They didn't have it. We have our entire New Testament. We have all that God wants for us. It isn't everything about God. It isn't everything about this world, but it is everything that we need for godliness. We're told that in scripture. And the day will come in which he would speak plainly. When would that day be? We've seen enough of it in studying. It's when the Holy Spirit comes. It's after his resurrection. It is after his ascension. And because of the victory in Christ, even over the grave, even over death itself, even over all this world has tossed at him, we also have the advantage of having all truth and understanding it plainly. To make it very practical, that is why sometimes as a New Testament believer, you now go to the scriptures and read and you say, I see what it says. Or you say to yourself, why is it that they can't see the gospel? It's so easy. Not really. They haven't had their eyes op understanding opened up yet. You're in Christ. Not only access to the truth, but access to the Father. This is huge. I could spend a long time on this. But in verses 26 through 28, you just scan it. Basically, they will ask in my name, and I do not say that uh, I will request to the Father on your behalf. They have access to the Father. Listen how significant that was. In the Old Testament, they had to go through a priest. For the most part, there were times in which God spoke directly to Abraham, to Moses. There were others. But basically, in the Old Testament, they had to work through a sacrificial system to get to the Father. They had to go through a priest. But that is not the case. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the New Testament believer is a priest. And we're part of the stones. And we can go directly to the Father. Look at chapter 15, verse 16 of John. Go back there for a second. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. We dealt with that, but watch the end again. That your fruit would remain in whatever you ask of the Father in my name. This is prayer. He may give it to you. In chapter 16, verse 23, not too long ago. In that day... You will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it you. So he's kind of summarizing it right at the end again. I have the victory. You will be able to know all truth when I leave because of my victory and his sending the Holy Spirit, his victory over the grave, his going back to the Father. You will also have direct access because you will be the New Testament priest. You will be able to go directly. And in Hebrews chapter 4, you can mark it down, I won't turn there, verses 14 to 16, and there it says we have such a high priest, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we can go boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. The Old Testament didn't have that. At, even with the apostles. And so this concept of coming in Jesus' name is really explained. It's a lot more than just a tag on at the end of the sentence. And, you know, because of that, in the contemporary movement, people like to pray and not add on Jesus' name, so it's not a tag on. Well, I understand that. But both are missing the whole concept. The whole concept is we're not, it would not even be possible for us to go to the Father. 
It would not be possible for us to get victory. It would not be possible for us to understand unless we went through the name of his son because of the work that he's done. Our meditation, the whole thing, this access to the Father. We, I mean, our, our mediator is only through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. When I was growing up as a Roman Catholic, the concept was you had to go to the priest to confess your sins, and you had to go to the priest because he was the one that would, no, 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 no. The only mediator between God and man is Jesus Christ. That's it. It isn't, it isn't Mary. It isn't other saints. It isn't other people. It's just what Jesus Christ did, and because of that intercessory work, I can go directly to the Father. And by the way, in chapter 17, Jesus is going to pray for them. But he says, it's not that I'm going to pray for you later on. Why? Because of the relationship that we have, notice this. I want you to see that in verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. Why is that? Because you have loved me. If you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you get no right to come to the Father. You say, well, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you believed on him? You say, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you obey what he says? Are you walking with him on a daily basis? You say, but you don't understand, Pastor Dan, all the tribulation, all the trials. Wait till the end, the last section of peace. You don't understand all the things that I'm facing and the struggles and the discouragement. You don't understand my kids. You don't understand my spouse. You don't understand the neighborhood I live in. You don't understand this. Hold that for one second. The point is, there is no relationship with the Father unless you have the relationship with the Son. And because we love Jesus Christ who first loved us and we have believed, and you notice, by the way, he summarizes the whole ministry again. He says, I came forth from the Father. I'm going back to the Father, and uh, that's, that's where I'm going. I came into the world, and I'm leaving and going back to him. He summarizes the whole ministry. Why did he come? He came, last five words, so that he would overcome the world. He would pay the penalty and price for sin. He would show what a true sacrifice and how someone can absorb substitutionally for sin and how God the Father could be satisfied. He overcame it. He did his job. He's going back. But they would have to carry on, and they would be encouraged by the fact that he was the victor. I want to get to it, and the last thing there that I have for you is also access to prayer. We, by the way, let's just make it practical again. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. That's made it possible for us, what? To have a relationship with God. It's made it possible for us to understand the word of God because the Holy Spirit's come. It's made it possible for us to have that relationship with the Father and to enter into prayer. We don't need a go-between. Jesus Christ has already done it all. We can go directly to the throne of grace, and the Father will answer us. He will listen because we are coming as a result of the work of the victor. And thirdly, he says, we have access to peace. That's verses 29 to 33. I just have to pass a comment to do justice to the passage. In verse 29, it says, his disciples said, lo, now you are speaking plainly. They said, oh, now we understand everything. You know, you're no longer speaking to us with figurative language. And they said, now we believe. Now, by the way, did they truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, by the Lord's own words. Just look one uh, passage ahead. Look at chapter 17, verse 8. 
For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. He's talking about his disciples. They have received them and truly understood that I have come forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Yeah, they believe, but they still don't fully understand and haven't applied it in the a, in a full sense. And that's why he says this. Do you really believe? Are you really walking in that belief? He says, and basically, you're going to be scattered. It isn't going to take long. You're going to desert me. I'm going to be all alone. They still didn't really understand. They were believers, but they were babies in Christ, just like us. Some of you say, well, I've been in the church for 30 years. I've read all the theology. I read the word every day. I know. You can't tell me. I know what the word says, and you're the person that probably knows the least. You can't exhaust the word of God. You don't have any claim on that. They didn't know. They believed in the Lord, but they were still babes in their understanding as far as practical application. And so the Lord really brings them back, and I said to hold on to it. He said, you're going to be scattered. And then he says this, verse 33. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have that. You're going to have difficulties with spouses. You're going to have difficulties with children. You're going to have difficulties at work. In fact, we've already learned, you're going to be thrown out of the synagogue. Your religious friends aren't going to like you. The world is going to hate you if you follow me. There's a test, by the way. If you love the world, the world will love you. How does the world look at you? But he says, look it. Though you've got all that tribulation and all that discouragement, it is no excuse for you not walking with me. Why? I have overcome the world. Your power isn't in yourself. Your power is in me. And that is what we have seen since chapter 13, including the vine and the branches, the abiding in me, the staying in Christ. The problem, folks, is we don't appropriate it day in and day out. And we are walking around with long faces about how we have such a difficult life. Listen. We have such a joyous life. There is nothing this world can throw our way that can take away what? The peace that we have in Christ. That is what the world is searching for. He says you'll have all of that from the world, tribulation, scattering, difficulty, but in me you will have peace. And why is that? You may have, and that's what he says, that's a very important expression, in me. In Christ you will have the peace because he has overcome the world because he is the victor. And it all starts with peace with God. That's salvation. That's Romans chapter, I won't turn there, chapter 5, verse 1. We have peace with God, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. The world is searching for peace. And we hear about it. I grew up in that hippie generation in the peace movement and the flower children and all that stuff that you want to talk about, whatever it is, and peace, 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 peace. Everybody wanted peace. Peace in that sense was either peace in the world for world war or it was just peace that everybody leave everybody else alone 
and so forth, but even all those peace seekers didn't have peace in here. But Jesus overcome the world. And the way we get peace with God is through Jesus Christ. There are those who have been successful technologically, financially, by power trying to overcome, and still they don't have peace with God, but in Jesus Christ, they can have peace. And what about the practical application? You say, I've trusted in Christ. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. So what are his parting words? Get your eyes off of the world. Get your eyes off of the circumstances of life. I am the one true victor. And in me, you have access. Access to the word, access to my father, and access to true peace. In Philippians, you know it, chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I, I have to stand before you and say, that is not always true in my life. I wish it were. But you know, because of the circumstances of life, we're not always rejoicing. Oh, let's be honest. Are there times that you say to if somebody came up to you, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. And inside you're saying, it's terrible. But you don't want to tell them because you think you're going to be less of a Christian. Or what are they going to think about you? But we don't always rejoice. Well, how is that possible? Rejoice in the Lord always. That's where our victory is. Sure, you're going to face those things. And again, I say what? Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Look at this. This is practical. Be anxious for nothing. I'm not an English major, and everybody knows that. But still, I mean, I just don't like the way that's worded. And the idea, be anxious for nothing, it almost just says, I just go. No, don't be worrying about anything. This is not our home. Oh, maybe you're suffering physically. That will end. Maybe some of the things at work aren't going right. That will change. We are not citizens of this world in this sense. But notice what he says. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, is that the way we approach? When we're involved in the trial, when they were being scattered, when in a few hours they would be running away from Jesus Christ, were they in prayer rejoicing and thank, giving thanks? I don't think so. In fact, they fell asleep in a few hours while he's praying. And they didn't want anything to do with them. They had failures, but we can have victory. Let your request be made known unto God. Notice verse 7. Now you got the peace of God. That's truly what surpasses all comprehension. And you notice this, it'll guard two things. What does it guard? Your heart and your mind. Our thinking in Christ Jesus. Where is our peace? Our peace is found when we abide in Christ. When we remain in him. When we look to the author and finisher of our faith. Oh, in the world we have circumstances. We have tribulation. Go back to John chapter 16. 
and his disciples, we're not going to escape that. The world is full of problems. We know that. But he says to them, just before he says, I have overcome the world, two words. What are they? Come on. Take courage. Take courage, fellow believer. Take courage in Christ. It hurts. Pain is real. Discouragement is real. Don't just put on a happy face. That's not what he's saying. But where our peace that passes all understanding comes from is when in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the circumstances, we find our peace in Christ. We know our victories in him, and that's what he leaves them with. After three years of teaching them, let it echo. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. I'm the conqueror, not only of the physical, but all those things that you face. Abide in me. Trust in me. Walk with me. Look to me. What about when you don't have understanding? What do you have people like Job do? They appeal to God. And the more that that vision was brought back to him, when you get to the later chapters, 38, 39, 40, and God begins to understand, he says, uh, my mouth is closed. I need to focus more on you. I'll get through. That's why Paul could later on say, to live is Christ. To die is gain. It's only gain. It's only gain. That's why he could say this light affliction, which is but for a moment, you've got to be kidding me. But it's laying up eternal weight and glory. Why? He had his focus on the victor. And because of him getting the victory, we are more than conquerors. And our walking with faith is the victory. And our trusting in him in the most difficult circumstances of life will bring victory. And that, I believe, is what he wants them to focus on. All that he's been teaching them, he summarizes again. I came in. I'm here. I'm going back to the Father. I'm preparing a place. You're going to have the Holy Spirit. You'll have access to clear truth. You'll be able to go to the Father. Yes, you're going to have tribulation. But in me, keep your focus. That was his whole chapter 13 to 16. I've been trying to show you. I led the example. Serve one another, chapter 13. I'm going back. Listen, I'm preparing a place for you, chapter 14. Listen, abide in me, and are my words in you. I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. You'll have victory. Chapter 16. Listen, it's to your advantage that I leave. Because that you will see the true conqueror and how he's overcome everything. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you. He will guide you. So don't forget, I have overcome the world. Let's close in prayer. Father, what a great Savior we serve. Oftentimes, as believers, we rejoice in our salvation. But then we kind of walk around in the world like we got to tough it out ourselves, make it on our own. We are living in a real world that has real tribulation. You've told the disciples, you told us that in the world we will have that. If we live godly, we will suffer perse persecution. But Father, our victory is in you. As we look to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's practical. As we walk by faith, we will feel the pressure of the world, 
But even as we're told in Ephesians, we are blessed when we are in James, we, as we endure temptation, and the multicolored trials come into our life, when we endure and stand up under the pressure, you're molding us, you're maturing us, and helping us to be more like Christ. Oh, Father, help our focus to be on those things. Help it to be on the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to walk in victory, even in the midst of difficulties. And we thank you that Christ led the way. And he is the ultimate conqueror. And because of him, we too shall live. If anybody hasn't come to Christ, we pray that you'd help them to see there isn't a world conqueror, there isn't a world leader, there isn't a world religion that can bring anybody to you, but only the one true conqueror who overcome the world, overcome sin, paid the penalty and price for our sin on the cross of Calvary, overcame death in his resurrection, and right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. Help them to put their faith in the one true and only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They might have forgiveness of sins, and they too might be overcomers. Commit the day to you. We thank you for this time, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.